Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The most common misconception that people have about public school students is people usually think that we're wild and don't know how to act around people and that we don't have manners, when in reality it's really different. A lot of the people are really nice at school actually, and people usually don't think that they are. A lot of people think that we're quiet and we don't go out much, but I know for a fact that I go everywhere and I talk to a lot of people and have a lot of friends. I don't have to get up super early in the morning. I like to sleep late, so that's a plus. People will assume that private school students are stuck up and kind of snooty. Public school students, you know, homeschool students, we're all students and we're all humans, we're all learning together. So where you go to school isn't really what connects us, is that we're young and learning. Going to public school is really fun. I've always gone to public school since I was in kindergarten. And I really enjoy it except for the fact that I can't keep my faith with God as strong as others. Like in private school, there's religious classes and at public school, it's just the basic like math, English, science classes. Going to private school and being a Christian and going to private school, is, it's kind of enveloped my life. I don't think I could do anything at school and not see God in some way in what I'm doing, you know? Going to homeschool, how it plays in my faith, it allows me to go to more church stuff. My mom lets me get to go to more because I don't have as much homework. I get to have a longer time with Jesus in the morning. I don't have to rush up and wake up and go to school. Uh, I think the best part of going to a private school is definitely the closeness of your class. It's like a more tightly knit than I think a regular public school would be. It's really quiet, but I have a couple of friends that do homeschooling too, so I'm not completely alone, because I like to socialize and talk a lot. Usually the conversations I have with my friends about my faith is usually me explaining why I can't eat certain food. I sometimes talk to my homeschooler friends about my faith. I'll tell them that there's an event. I'm like, oh, you guys should come to my church. We always have these events, and Jesus is awesome. And sometimes I'll ask questions about my religion, and I'll give them a short summary so I don't bore them out too much. I've definitely had a lot of discussions with teachers and students, and they have, you know, helped me grow my faith. They've um, changed my mind on certain things and they've strengthened my views on certain things but it's definitely a common uh, thing for me at school. Being part of the Loma Linda University community has helped play a part in my faith because when I was younger I wasn't really involved in church and um, I had a choice to go to church and I did choose to go to church, but not until I went to Loma Linda University Church is when I start to grow in my faith more because I've been more involved in church here. It has helped develop my faith in more than one ways. 
I go to Regent High School and I just, they're like my other family. And whenever I'm gone for a while, they come back, they always scream, Nadia, we missed you. And it just makes me feel warm inside. In high school, I've had just so many wonderful memories made at church with so many different amazing people. Through all of this, through going to church here for mainly all my life, I think my faith is uh, all the more stronger for it. A young boy named Jerry felt the call of God on his life. He was 13 years old, and he wasn't at all eager about that call. Wasn't excited about the fact that it appeared that God was tapping him on the shoulder with a special duty, a special mission for him to carry out. Tried to get away from it. Tried to ignore it. Think about other things, get busy at school, go out with friends, but it was always kind of there, persistent after him. He decided he'd go talk to his pastor. So when he walked into the pastor's office, Pastor Jones said, Jerry, it's good to see you. Come in, have a seat. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? Jerry said, well, it's this thing. You all, what's the word you use for it? A, um, a, a conviction. It's like this growing conviction inside of me that God has something special for me in my life. I'm not excited about it. I'm really young. So tell me about it. What do you think God is calling you to do? Well, he's, I don't know what it is specific, but it seems like it's a very big plan for my life. Big plan, yes. Maybe having to do with something national or international. How old did you say you were? Thirteen. Hmm. Well, Jerry, why don't you just just keep going to school, keep doing your schoolwork, go out with your friends. You've got to live life. You're a young person. There are a lot of things that you can enjoy and do, and God needs to be a part of it. And every 12-year-old needs to have some outlets. I'm 13. Oh, oh yes. Every 13-year-old, sorry, you know, 12, 13, whatever. But, yeah, just, just keep doing what you're doing. But, Pastor, it just keeps bothering me. I feel like God is calling me. So what do you say to Jerry? If you're Pastor Jones, giving him wisdom and counsel, how do you respond to this sense of call at such a young age? Now, you've heard Jerry's story before. In fact, you may have recognized it. In fact, you heard it just moments ago when Ari Milosavljevic and Brianna Hunley read it to us. It's the story of, well, he's not really known as Jerry. He's known as Jeremiah, Jerry for short. Story of Jeremiah in Scripture. I want to reread that passage to you, and I want to ask you to pay especially close attention as we read to God's persistence, God's doggedness in coming after Jeremiah, and pay attention to Jeremiah's unwillingness, his lack of eagerness to be a part of this. So Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. 
I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So the text says that God had his thoughts on Jeremiah before Jeremiah ever came to be. And that God's plan for Jeremiah was very specific. And that that specific plan that God had for Jeremiah was to do something fairly dramatic. It further says that Jeremiah wasn't excited about it. It says that he said, no, 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 I can't do that. And then it says that God rejected Jeremiah's rejection. He said, no, 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 you will do it. I'm going to send you, and this is maybe the most stunning part of all, I'm going to send you to uproot, to tear down, to build, to plant. Jeremiah, your life, your ministry, what I'm going to do through you is going to have international implications. That's what the text says. And it says Jeremiah is not excited at the proposition in the least. One word in the text, one Hebrew word in the text, helps us understand why he's not excited about it. It's the word that in the today's New International Version, the TNIV from which we've just read, it's the word that the TNIV translates young. Young. It's an interesting word. It actually can refer to a bit of a range in terms of age. It is used at times to describe an infant in arms. It's used to describe a babe that has come to the weaning time of life. It's used to describe somebody in late adolescence. Those are the primary uses, but it is even used to describe at times somebody a bit older than that. Young. If we want to get a good flavor of what the word means, then we probably ought to note what it says in the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Because the New Revised Standard Version renders it a bit differently than the TNIV does. The NRSV says that when God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, this is what I'm planning for you, Jeremiah responds and says, God, that can't be. I'm only a boy. To which God responds, Don't say you're only a boy because you will do what I have called you to do. Actually, Jeremiah has two objections. One is, I can't speak. The other is, I'm too young. Now, you can get why Jeremiah would say that. He said it because it was true. He said it because of the context in which he found himself. I want to read you the words of Old Testament scholar Michael Brown, who quotes another scholar in his quote, to underline the social context and situation in which Jeremiah was living and in which he was expected to minister. These are Brown's words. Jeremiah fully understands that the call to be a prophet 
means that it is a call to speak. Hence his protest in 1 verse 6. Berrigan has captured the weight of all this. Who, at any stage of life, issued such a summons, would not feel callow, inept, a stutterer. Suddenly, everyone in the world seems more qualified, more gifted, superior, wiser, more apt to win the divine pleasure. Only look about you, young Jeremiah. There are in Jerusalem divines and nobles, savants and saints, priests, elders, prophets, each and all planted in fruitful soil. There is wisdom aplenty, access to the powerful, instructions handed down with assurance, law, order, honorable service in temple and court. And in the face of this ample wit and wisdom, you are the chosen? Yahweh speaking to you? All these others passed over, redundant, of lesser moment? And to think of the utterly confrontational message that the young prophet would be ordered to deliver. You? Well, that's what Jeremiah is saying. Me? What are you talking about? I can't speak, and I'm too young. So what does God do with those objections? To the first one, the text says, he touches Jeremiah's mouth, touches his lips, almost like what happened in the call of Isaiah. He touches his lips, and he says to him, Look, Jeremiah, I have touched your mouth, and I am putting my words in your mouth. My words, your mouth. In other words, you will be the instrument, but I will give you what to say. You don't need to be frightened to stand up and speak. You don't need to worry about what it is that you will say at any given time, because I will give it to you. Check that off the list, God says. Done. Dealt with that objection. Now, what was the other objection? Ah, yes. The one about your age. People like to use age as an excuse, don't they? I'm too old. I'm too young. Jeremiah's case, I'm too young. The way that God responds to that is that he says to Jeremiah, look, Jeremiah, here's what's going to happen. As you go out to carry out the mission, I will be with you. I will accompany you. You will never be alone. I will rescue you. I'm not sure I like the sound of that. Because that gives Jeremiah a glimpse of what is to come. What do you mean, rescue me? I'm going to need rescuing? What are you going to have me do? Never mind, Jeremiah. I will be with you and I will rescue you. In other words, in other words, you don't have to worry about your age because you will have the ageless one with you. So much for that objection. In other words, what God is saying to Jeremiah is youth is not a barrier to the possibilities of God. Youth is never a barrier for enlisting in the service of God. Robert's family lore says that when my father turned 14, because of troubled situations at home, 
He ran away and joined the service. This is what Robert's family lore says. Dad looked very mature for his age, the tallest of the kids, almost 6'3". They signed him up until his mother found out and stormed down to the station and said, you know how old he is? Told him, and they immediately discharged him. That was the end of that. We can't sign you up at that age, but no such thing in the service of God. Youth, he says, is not a barrier. It's not an obstacle. It's not an impediment to that to which I am calling you. I'm not sure why that's surprising to me. I guess I, I must think at some level, well, you have to be a certain age. You have to have a certain level, a degree of maturity in order to do the great things for God. And God is here saying, no, that's not true. We even see that in the world around us. Have you paused to notice what young people do in the world around us? Ann Mikosinski. You heard of Ann Mikosinski? 15-year-old high school student in Canada. You would think just a normal average high school student, nothing outstanding, nothing unusual here about Ann. But Ann had a friend, a friend in the Philippines, a friend who was having trouble that caused Anne some grief. Her friend said to her, I, I, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to do well in my classwork, but when nighttime comes, the electricity often goes off, and I can't study. Well, that bothered Anne. So she put her creative energies to work. She let her creative juices flow. And she invented what has become known as the hollow flashlight. It's a hollow flashlight. You can find it on the Internet. It's quite remarkable to see and show how it works. It has a hollow core where the batteries usually are because she designed it in such a way that when the cool air inside connects with the warmth of the human hand surrounding it, it has a reaction that provides energy and the light comes on. She said, I'll give it free to developing countries. After all, she said, it cost me, the materials to invent it cost me $26. 15 years old. Or what about 12-year-old Alex Deans? Maybe you've run across Alex's name. Alex, who one day was watching a, a person, an adult, try to cross the street and noticed that they were having some real difficulties. And so, as a young man who had been well raised by his parents, went over to help the person across the street, upon which time he discovered the person was blind. Well, it bothered Alex. Nod at him. And so he went to work. I've got to do something about this. And he invented what has become called the iAid. Just like iPad or iPod or iPhone, this is the iAid. Includes GPS and compass, and it, has worked in such, it works in such a way that it advises a person who is blind of the obstacles up ahead, which direction they need to turn, where they need to go. Twelve years old. He would go on to work in other Realities, inventing other things, so much so that he caught the attention of Chevrolet, who put him to work and helped with devices to help encourage teens not to text and drive. 
12 years old. Or what about Mary Grace Harper, another 12-year-old? Mary Grace Harper, who somehow became aware of the plight of young women in developing countries and their inability to afford going to school. It began to really eat at her, to bother her thinking, here I am, I'm able to go to school, I'm able to learn, and because of that, I have a future up ahead of me, I should be able to do something with my life. That's not fair. And so this 12-year-old girl, her birthday was coming up, asked for a sewing machine. You remember those? Asked for a sewing machine and went to work sewing. She sewed reversible headbands and took them to school and sold them. She sewed many reversible headbands, so many of them, so much that that year she was able to finance the education of one young girl in a developing country. But she wasn't done yet. She kept working, put all her energies into the task so that by this point, just a few years later, she has now financed the education of 66 young girls in Kenya, Uganda, Paraguay, Haiti. The organization that she ultimately founded became known as Reverse the Course continued to focus on education for young girls in other parts of the world. When she was given an award, she said, I came to realize, I came to understand that if you can educate a young girl, you not only change her life, you change her family, you change her country. Twelve years old. Or what about Trevor Farrell? Eleven years old. Trevor Farrell, who with his family was watching the news one winter evening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The news ran a feature on the homeless in Philadelphia and just how difficult it is in the winter time of year in a city like Philadelphia for homeless persons to survive. Told the story of people who were desperate and people who were hungry and people who were cold. By the time the newscast was over, Trevor said, I have to do something. Mom, Dad, you have to drive me downtown. What? You have to drive me downtown. For what? You have to take me downtown. His parents got in the car, and downtown they went with Trevor. As they arrived downtown, were driving around, they saw a man lying on top of a grate, hoping that the hot air that blew up out of the grate would somehow keep him warm enough to survive the night. Trevor got out of the car, gingerly made his way over to the man, said to him, Sir, sir, this is for you, and gave him a blanket. The man looked up at him, said, Well, God bless you, son. Somehow those words lit a fire in Trevor's young heart. And now he would not be dissuaded. His parents would later say, it kind of changed our social life. Our friend said, what in the world are you doing? Trevor would answer the question simply by saying, it's Jesus in me that makes me want to do this. He wasn't so interested in the attention that came his way, but it came his way. Media stories, talk shows. 
being featured in one of the State of the Union addresses of President Ronald Reagan. He sparked a campaign called Trevor's Campaign, built a place called Trevor's Place, and for many years in the city of Philadelphia, homeless people were cared for because of one 11-year-old boy and his dream. And then there's Jerry, or Jeremiah. Jeremiah. I'm too young for all this. I don't even know how to speak. God says, I will put my word within you. In fact, so much does God fulfill his word to put his word within Jeremiah that at one point, chapters later, Jeremiah will say, I don't want to speak your word anymore. It's getting me in too much trouble, and yet you have planted it in me so that it burns like a fire within me, and it drives me out to share what you've given to me with others. This young boy becomes a pivotal prophet in the history of Israel in what is arguably one of the most violent, chaotic times in Israel's history as the nation is literally collapsing on itself, as the Babylonian hordes are overrunning the land, as the city of Jerusalem is being destroyed, as the temple is falling. Who is there trying to stand in the gap for God but a man named Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? All started. When the Spirit of God tapped a boy on the shoulder, said, I have a call for you. I have a plan for you. I want to do something with your life. If nothing else, that should tell us that age is immaterial to God at either end of the spectrum. Age doesn't matter. Youth is not a barrier to the possibility of God. Just peruse the pages of this book. You will come upon the story of a battle and a giant and an entire army quaking in their sandals until a young man stands up and says, I'll do something. You will find the story of a manger in a stable and a vision of a baby holding by a slender thread this globe in his tiny fist. Youth is not a barrier with God. Because of that, any among us who are young don't think that just because you're on the younger end, I, I'm not into all that. I can't speak. I can't do anything. God can speak to you as quickly, as easily, and as loudly as he can speak to any of the rest of us. God will just be doing what God does. We may not, we may not be here today in a church called Seventh-day Adventist were it not for God tapping a young teenage girl on the shoulder. I have something for you. But let's not make it only about the young among us. Because those of us who have been down the road a little bit longer and around the block a couple of times, 
we have a part to play. And in fact, the part we have to play may be best illustrated by a story. It's the story told by Ken Davis. Ken Davis, speaker and author, for many years, speaker for Youth for Christ Ministries. He tells the experience he had of participating in an experiment with several hundred college students, future youth ministry workers, a place called Rockport College. They were going to do an experiment. And so they tried to lay out as much as they needed to to begin with, with all of these students. First of all, they asked for a volunteer. That volunteer went backstage to be blindfolded. And then the leader said to those in the group, Now, here's what we want to do. What I'm wanting to do is to take this blindfolded volunteer, and I want this guy to go down the aisle all the way to the end, up the steps, and you see that leader back there on the steps. I want him to go up and give that leader a hug. When he does that, we will have accomplished our purpose. But he doesn't know that. He doesn't know why he's back there blindfolded. And here's what I'd like you to do. When he comes out, I want you to start yelling out directions to him of any kind for anything. You can yell, go get ice cream. You can yell, read a book. You can yell, go back home and go to bed. You can yell, why didn't you clean your room this morning? Go do it. You can yell anything you want to yell. I just want you all yelling something, some instruction to him. Now, what they all didn't know was that seated down here close to the front was another volunteer who was the one who would be yelling the correct instructions. Walk down the aisle, up the steps, hug the leader that's there. They didn't know that. But that voice would be adding his voice to the mix. Everybody ready? All right, let's go. And so they brought out the blindfolded volunteer. And when the volunteer stepped onto the stage, a cacophony of sound, chaos erupted. Screaming, yelling, instructions of all kinds. It was a loud den of noise. Well, the poor blindfolded volunteer had no idea what to do, trying to make out some of the voices, wandering over here, wandering over there, trying to feel his way around, utterly, totally confused. And they stopped it. Sent him backstage again. End of the first phase. Three phases. Second phase. They said, okay, there was one of you here who was yelling the right instructions. Come up here. That person came up. Now I need another volunteer. Somebody else volunteered. You come up. Okay, now the two of you are going to stand beside him. You can get as close as you want, but you can't touch him. Get as close as you want. I want you to continue yelling the right instructions, telling him what to do, and I want you to do anything you can to keep him from doing those right instructions. And the rest of you, you do just as you did before. Brought the volunteer out again, a cacophony of chaos. Only this time, in each ear, louder voices. One telling him, go down the aisle. Go. The other no, 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 don't you dare do that. That's the worst thing you can do. And again, he started, and then he stopped when this voice would get louder, and then this one get, he'd go again. Totally confused, uncertain of what to do. They ended the second phase. And now the third phase. I actually want to read it to you from Davis's own words. As he writes about the third phase, he says, The response to the third phase was startling. 
In this phase, everything remained the same except the one with the vital message. That was the volunteer who was giving him the correct instructions. The one with the vital message was allowed to touch the volunteer. He could not pull, push, or in any way force the volunteer to do his bidding, but he could touch him and in that way encourage him to follow. The blindfolded volunteer was led into the room. When he appeared, the silence erupted into an ear-splitting roar. The two messengers stood close, shouting their opposing words. Then the one with the vital message put his arm gently around the volunteer, the blindfolded volunteer's shoulder, and leaned very close to speak directly into his ear. Almost without hesitation, the blindfolded volunteer began to yield to his instruction. Occasionally, he paused to listen as the opposition frantically tried to convince him to turn around. But then, by the gentle guidance of touch, the one with the vital message led him on. A moment of frightening realism occurred spontaneously as the one with the vital message grew close to the goal. All those in the audience who up to this point had been shouting their own individual instruction suddenly joined in unison to keep the blindfolded volunteer from taking those final steps. Goosebumps were all over my body as the students began to chant, Don't go! Don't go! Don't go! So many times, reflects Davis, I've seen the forces that pull our youth in different directions join together to dissuade them from a serious commitment to Christ. The chant grew to a pulsing crescendo. Don't go. Don't go. But the guiding arm of the one with the vital message never left the blindfolded volunteer's shoulder. At the top of the stairs in the back of the lecture hall, the one with the vital message leaned in one last time to whisper in the ear of the volunteer. There was a moment of hesitation. Then the volunteer threw his arms around the instructor, and the auditorium erupted in cheers and applause. And then Davis ponders. When the volunteer revealed how he felt as he went through each phase, it became apparent to me that if our message is to be heard, we cannot shout it from the cavernous confines of church buildings. We must venture out and draw close to those with whom we wish to communicate. If we really seek a life-changing commitment from our young people, we also must reach out where they are and in love, gently touch them and lead them to that commitment. We asked that volunteer why he followed the one with the vital message, the one who touched him. After a few moments, he said, because it felt like he was the only one that really cared. We all have a part to play. If you're a young person here this morning, your youth is no barrier to God. It is no obstacle to God. It is no hindrance to God placing God's call on your life and telling you, I'm going to do something special with you, even something dramatic and grand. 
But there will be all kinds of voices around you screaming and shouting every kind of direction imaginable. Our culture will make certain of that. Our social media will make sure of that. All other voices trying to dissuade you. But God is still speaking. He will still call you. He will still use you. So I have two things to say. One, to our youth. When you hear the call of God, understand this. He is able if you are willing. It's that simple. He is able if you are willing, regardless of your age. And two, to those of us a bit further down the road of life, I would say it's time we touch them. Gracious, loving, firm guidance. The whisper in the ear that says, you're not alone. You're going the right way. I'm right here with you. I say those two things because it's still true this week. No matter what age you are, we are better together.